Welcome to the first episode of Startup Explorer. This show is about hearing the story behind amazing projects, companies, and ideas. We also get a sense for the people who create them. In this episode, we're talking about creating a school, the D School to be precise, a school within Stanford that has been praised by the likes of the Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, and Wired Magazine. The New York Times called it one of the most highly sought after destinations at Stanford. It's helped create companies like D-Light, which makes solar-powered light sources for the 2 billion people in the developing world who don't have access to reliable energy. And the Embrace Blanket, a low-cost incubator that helps save the lives of premature and low-weight infants in rural areas of developing countries. The D-School is officially known as the Hasso-Plattner Institute of Design. I'll leave the description of what it is to our guest, Bernie Roth. Bernie is one of the co-founders of the D-School and its academic director. He also has the respectable achievement of having taught at Stanford for over 52 years. Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what is the D-School? Well, uh, first of all, let's look at the name. We're not a school. Uh, we're an institute. And uh, what that means is we cannot admit anyone to Stanford and we can't give degrees. And Stanford has seven schools of engineering, law, medicine, uh, humanities and science, so forth. And uh, we're not one of them. And that point was made very clearly uh to us by the president Hennessy and by the provost and by the dean of engineering. And they said, you can't use that name, but it's such a sticky name that now everyone uses it because who wants to say Hassel Platt Institute of Design at Stanford, just too big a word. So we're not a school, we're an institute and we can't give degrees, but we can give courses and we can uh, do projects and we can deal with companies and we can do everything else other than the part of the giving the degree and admitting students students. And the other thing is the D, most people think it stands for design. Actually, we really should say design thinking because we're not training professional designers. There are people who do that elsewhere at Stanford. We're training people to use this methodology which arose in, in designing things for solving all sorts of problems. And we're training people to not design physical things, but to solve social problems, to organizational issues, and things of that nature. So it's just a shortcut, sticky little name, the D-School. But we didn't start out to build a new school or a new program. We started out to change an existing program, but it became clear we needed something new. Is it difficult to convince Stanford to let you start quote-unquote a school? Well, it was it was not difficult once we got $35 million from Hasso Platinus. It became very easy. But before that, uh, we went to the dean of engineering, who was a friend of ours, and he gave us one little room and where we could meet and talk and all that. And we had about five faculty where we meet regular, and we kind of talked about it and all that. And uh, as part of that, we decided, well, we needed to raise money, and we made a prospectus. And the prospectus had in it uh, small amounts, like uh, 500000 for this, a million for that, and all of that. And um, we, at the time, we were prominent people. One of our grads was the CEO of Yahoo. And we figured and he was one of the highest paid executives in America at the time, before the crash. And we figured, well, someone like that would give us a few million. And so, so you know, we had this thing price for easy sale. And then when we met Hasso Plantner, he looked at the whole 
perspective, and he added up the number, and it came to thirty-five million. And he bought the whole menu, so that was sort of a surprise for us. But once he signed up, uh, the university agreed to go for it, and uh, they agreed to give us some space. The problem was they didn't have any space to give us, so they put us in a trailer. Uh, way out in the corner of the campus near the hospital. We got half of a trailer. And uh, at first we were resentful about that, but it turns out it was a great gift because we, it was, wasn't spre- precious. Nobody cared what we did with that trailer. So we could hammer out the spaces and just change it to our, our liking. And we were there for about a year or so, and then they gave us the second floor of Sweet Hall, which they were going to renovate. So we could go in there and tear out the rugs. So we moved three or four times. And that was a gift because we learned that we could make space serve us. And space was a big part of the way we teach. And space became a hallmark for us. And while we were doing that, the building we're in now, which is the Peterson Lab, which belonged to material science, uh, was being renovated and we could apply all the things we learned to that and eventually some of our people actually wrote a book called Make Space published by John Wiley which describes all the things we discovered about space so it was a learning experience for us which we would have never gotten if we were handed a ready made space and to this day we keep always renovating and we, we give a lot of thought to space much more than I ever did in my teaching before How has running the D school as the academic director and the process of starting, how has that been different than just teaching a class? Is it a completely unrelated type of task? Sure. Well, uh, my whole life is different in that uh, the physical place I'm in, I used to be as a professor in my own private office. Now I have a private office, but I just keep my yoga clothes in it. I hardly go there. I'm in the D school where we have a common space and we work as a team. And, uh, you know, I'm the most senior person there. And I may be next to uh, a person who just got hired two days ago who doesn't have anything more than a bachelor's degree. So it's a totally non-hierarchical, non-differentiated space. It's like working with your family. And so the way I work is very different. And for me, I never did any administrative work. So I, I used to just spend my time teaching and doing my research. Now I actually do very little research. I still teach a lot. But I spend time just making sure things work right and facilitating things and uh, vetting courses for other, that whether letting people decide whether they can teach in the D school or not, doing a lot of tours, publicity. You know, so it's a kind of different thing. And one of my main jobs is to sort of represent the D school with the uh, Stanford administration because I have the stature of being a faculty member, whereas most of the people in D school are not regular faculty. So the D-School teaches classes for graduate students? And also now undergrads somewhat. But, and it's going more, we, we're, we're doing more with undergrads, but traditionally we were biased towards graduate students. Why was that? Uh, my prejudice, partially. Uh, I find that undergrads are, their lives are a little too complicated, especially at Stanford. We have a lot of people that are in athletics and all that, and their the time is just, uh, I mean, you think graduate students are more complicated because they maybe have families and all that, 
But it, I found that uh, uh, for the kinds of things we're doing, uh, grads are much more suited. And uh, so I was very reluctant to let undergrads into my classes. And uh, there'd always be one or two that sneaked in. And they were often the best student in the class. And the, my colleagues say, see, Bernie, why are you giving them such a hard time? I said, it's because I give them such a hard time that they do so well. <laughs> but now we're actually, uh, we want to instill what's called creative confidence in every Stanford student, and we're starting to work more with undergrads and all that. And the D-School also does executive education? Yeah, we do. We do. We do. At the moment, we're doing four programs a year, and they last for about three or four days, and we get people. We start out doing them for people from like one company, like Procter & Gamble or drug, but now we mix them up, so we don't allow too many for one company in the the cohort. We just did our largest one ever. We had over 100 people, and we had maybe, we didn't have more than three people or four people from one company and we get them from around the world that it's very successful and like everything around here it changes every time we do it it's people say it's the best executive i've ever done and we change it <laughs> and you you guys have worked with a lot of companies like yes. google facebook nike to name a couple so they they come out to the d school and they take part in these executive education programs that's together. one way yeah they they also these companies will help to give us projects for other classes but the exec ed is really based on training their people to use design thinking to use it back at their own jobs uh the other way we're involved with companies is we do most all of our classes are project based and we get projects from all over so we get them from NGOs but we also get them from companies and some we make up and all that but uh, we do uh, work with companies on some projects also do you have a favorite project that your students have have come up with over the years I have several favorites, yeah. You mentioned two in your introduction, namely Delight and Embrace. Uh, uh, I especially love Embrace because uh, one of the principals, the guy who's actually CEO now, uh, is sort of someone I enticed into design thinking. I lured this poor electrical engineering PhD uh, student as he was finishing his PhD into uh, a summer course on design thinking and hooked him. And he's now, instead of making the big bucks in Silicon Valley in India, making very little bucks, but having a very great satisfied life. So I feel very close to that project. But there are others. There's uh, one project I had in my transformative design class where uh, this team of four found some poor janitors at Stanford that spoke very little English, many Spanish speakers, and they, in working with them, the, the students found that these people were being ripped off in every way uh, when it came to money. It was costing them a lot to pay cash their paychecks, their cell phones they were being overcharged for, their TVs they were being overcharged for. So they found that if they could give these people a little bit of education about finance, and these people had no banking accounts, they were out of the banking system totally, no credit cards, uh, they could change everything. And miraculously, one of these uh, people they worked with saved uh, a large percentage of salary in a very few months and that just blew the minds of one of his students and he started a company called Juntos Financi, Financi and uh, it's very successful now they're dealing with people in South America they've contracted with the biggest banks in Colombia and it just, it's just very heart rendering when, when those things happen 
looking forward for the D school, what in your mind would be the ideal thing that it could achieve in the world? Well, the main thing is to uh, empower students. That's the ideal thing. You know, we're doing that, and we can do more of it. And uh, that's to me the main thing. You know, we say. Uh, there are the innovations, which are the things we're talking about, like delight and embrace, and then there are the innovators. And, you know, we like the innovations. There's no two ways about it. We feel proud that it changes the world. But mainly, our bottom line is the innovators, it's the students, and to make them feel power, what we call creative confidence, to make them feel power in their own ability to do stuff and to be creative and have a good life. And my special interest is their life, not so much the stuff they create. One of the people I interviewed uh, prior to this was Sebastian Thrun. He yeah, was a computer I know, science. I know him very well. Yeah. yeah. So he was a computer science professor at Stanford yeah, and yes. left to start a company, Udacity, yeah. whose whole goal is to uh, provide technical education to for free for, so yes. that people that can't afford it can also take it. Yes. Uh, with the D-School, uh, it, so many people have been excited about it. It seems that every class gets filled up and there are more students that want to come than, yeah. than are able to. Have you guys ever brainstormed ideas of bringing it to people beyond Stanford students and beyond the, the handful of companies and executives that participate? Yeah, sure. We, we actually have a, a, a subgroup called D-Global, and their idea is to bring us to, out into the world. Right now, they're working with Stanford students on the overseas campuses, but we mix them up with a lot of local people, and we work there. So we are moving out. It's, you know, we're limited in people power and stuff like that, but yes, we do want to bring it out. But, but our idea is not uh, it's not the same scale and not the same uh, way uh, Sebastian is talking about it. Uh, ours is much more hands-on and direct experience. His is sort of, you know, throwing it over to transit to people listening and all that. And, you know, they both have their place and all that. And uh, But uh, it's just different, you know. I want to talk a little bit about the ideas behind design thinking and the D school. So in your book, The Achievement Habit, which is a really great book, you talk about how the human potential movement has influenced you. And in particular, you mentioned the Esalen Institute. Um, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what ideas you took from uh, both Esalen in particular and the human potential movement in general and how that affected Sure, sure. Well, it was very pivotal in my life. Uh, I came out of New York City. I went to the City College of New York as an undergrad in mechanical engineering. And then I did a master's and PhD at Columbia University, also in mechanical engineering. So I was trained as a classical engineer. And I came out to California uh, and was sort of a little surprised about the people not wearing jackets when they taught and, you know, the sort of laid back California thing. And uh, was just interested in stuff and designing machines and eventually robots and stuff like that. And then uh, when I happened to be invited to participate in a faculty sampler weekend at Esalen, it kind of opened me up to this whole idea of the human potential movement, which I didn't know anything about. I didn't pay any attention to it. 
And I found that it spoke to me as a person, and I found I had a lot of skills in it, and I could incorporate it into my teaching. And uh, I remember I had a conversation with my chairman at the time uh, when I started to incorporate this stuff in my teaching. He said, listen, Roth, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand you're an engineer? Engineers deal with things, not with people. And, uh, you know, that I wasn't intimidated by him. I thought he was a little bit off base, and... Uh, by now, he no longer holds those views. But that was the view at the time in, in the 60s. And so for me, it was a big, it was kind of a risky step in the sense that I was doing things that engineers kind of didn't traditionally do. But I felt in my heart it made a lot of sense that I felt that uh, I, I always used to say uh, teaching design is like life. Uh, in, in design, uh, your boss or someone gives you a problem in life. You're born, and whoever you believe in, or whatever you believe, get nature or go whatever gives you a problem. And there are all sorts of constraints and obstacles, and you have to work on. So I always saw the parallel, and people would chuckle when I'd make these part of my talks. But I really believed it in a way, and uh, I, I just the more I did it, the more I felt it really made a lot of sense. So for a lot of times, I was an outlier. Now they have design your life courses here; they're quite popular and all that. But believe me, when I start, no one was doing it, and it was uh, people were looking kind of askance at it. I was very lucky that my course, which was originally called the Individual and in Technology, later became the Design Society, immediately became very, very popular with students. And so by the time people started to want to get rid of it, it was too popular to get rid of it. So I luckily uh, kept it, and I'm very proud of it. Did you naturally find the confidence to start a class like that that I'm assuming you knew was going, going to face some pushback or at least wasn't going to be accepted? Yeah, well, well, it was everything, you know, everything in life is timing. So um, I went on sabbatical 68, 69, and this resolved that when I came back from my sabbatical, I would have new classes. And so I put this one in the individual technology, and then I, I knew they were interested in computers and design, so I made a computer-aided design class, which was very new then. So, and then I made another very technical class that they love, spatial kinematics. And then I presented this package of the three classes. And at the time, people were breaking windows and everything, and the, the, the chairman's attention was didn't I don't think he even looked at it. He said, yeah, okay, right, go teach that. So it, before they knew what I had done, I had done it. I think if the times were more peaceful and all, they would have looked at it more carefully and I might not have gotten it through. But I did get it through. And uh, at one point they changed the dean and the acting dean called me in to talk to me about it. And he wasn't sure it was appropriate for me to do it. And he sent me over to the Cal Health Center to talk to the psychologists there. And they loved it so much. One of them started team teaching with me in the class. And it was funny. But this this acting dean, he really wanted to get rid of it. But he didn't, fortunately. So you mentioned you grew up in New York. Yes. And uh, in, in your book, you mentioned you went to elementary school in the Bronx. Yes. Um, specifically PS96. That's right. If you... If you were to go back in time, or let's say uh, the D school had a chance to redesign that public school, that elementary yeah, yeah. school you went to, what would that look like? Oh God! Well, uh, it's hard. It's hard to remember. I don't. Yeah, I can't say I remember a lot about it. Uh, um, you know, I think it's it was it's very hierarchical. The teachers were godlike figures. You know, some more than others. Uh, 
Uh, I'd say the only real kind moment I remember is my mother died when I was young and uh, the principal sort of took me in hand and I was interested in photography and she introduced me to a photographer. But other than that, I think it was just um, sort of a factory and, uh, you know, I I, I, I don't know. It wasn't bad. You know, I'd say it was, uh, I wasn't very interested in it and, uh, I didn't have any parental guidance, really, and uh, it was just a matter of going. But it wasn't dangerous like schools are now. You know, it was no one was beating me up or stealing from me, and uh, it was pretty homogeneous culturally. You know, there were two groups. There was the Jewish working class group, and the, there were three, the Jewish working class group, the Italian working class group, and the Irish working class group. But, uh, you know, pretty much it was okay, except on certain holidays there was some friction. But. So you lead creativity workshops around the, around the world. Yes. Um, and uh, also in places like China and Taiwan. Yes. And you, I've heard you talk a little bit about the differences you've noticed in motivation um, in those places. Specifically in your book, you mentioned China, that you found a lot more intrinsic motivation mm-hmm. there in the students where as, at Stanford, you were surprised that the task of motivating students was left to the professor. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I'd just love to hear, um, what have you learned, just teaching these workshops around the world, what have you seen are the differences in people and sure. what are the similarities? Sure. Well, the, the funny difference I remember very vividly, uh, it actually was in my book, but my editor made me take it out. Uh, but I love the story. I was in Korea and I have a very close friend who has a PhD from Harvard, but he's Korean, but he grew up partially in America. And he teaches, he's a professor in Korea and at the very the top university. So he invited me there to give some lectures. And, and he actually took some of my creativity workshops here. So he knows what I'm about and all that. And he warned me, he said, Bernie, you know, Korean students are not like American students. You're not going to get them to interact with you. You're not going to get them to talk back and, uh, you know, have a give and take. So you better just modify your style. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And I kind of uh, made this thing where I closed the door and you couldn't leave until you said something and all that. I kind of intimidated him into it. And uh, I got something and all that. And the second day, sort of one of the students, they flipped and he sat in the front and I couldn't shut him up. And it was like, the joke is I had created a monster. And uh, what it was is I realized if if you change the rules of the game, people will be different. Students know how to respond to the rules of the game. And in their culture, they have this rule, you see. But uh, once I change the rule, they're just like Americans. They can do it also. So that's kind of interesting that they're not given that way. It's just the world is expected that way. And the Korean professors treat it that way. And so it's a kind of interesting thing. The other thing was, which was also interesting was in India, I, I was in this classroom and I worked very hard to get them to interact with me. And again, Indian students tend to be very respectful and all that. And I finally got this really great give and take going on. And then the uh, director of the institute walked in and he interrupted the student. He says, I respectively ask that you do not interrupt Professor Roth till he is finished with the lecture. And I could kill this, this director. He totally didn't get what I was about. You know? so, so, it's a, so the culture is more with the faculty than the students. I find the students, you can shape them up. The professors are so fixed in their methods, it's much harder. Great. Just a couple more questions. Sure. 
there are three classes that you teach in the D school that I thought were particularly interesting. Designer and society, you mentioned. There's another one, transformative design. Yes. And uh, then there's the launchpad class where students create a business in 10 weeks. Yes. Uh, what is the key learning that people get? Because most people take too long to start something, or they never do, yeah, right, even right. more likely. Sure. Yeah, well, let me first make a correction. I, I myself am not teaching the launchpad class, okay? It's mainly uh, the main person behind it now is Perry Claibon, and there was uh, Michael Deering was with him, and now Jeremy Utley is with Perry. So th- those are the two people primarily, and I'm not one of them, but I do know what goes on, and they're very close friends of mine, and they've co-taught with me in other classes, so I can venture to speak for them. So the, the main idea there is uh, in the D-School, we have something called a bias for action, and we also have this thing of not being afraid to fail. And what we you find is tradition when people want to talk about starting a business and stuff like that, it involves a lot of planning and a lot of caution to make sure you don't fail. And that slows you down a tremendous amount of time. This course is based on the idea of evoking the design thinking principles that just go for it. You have an idea, just start doing it. We know you're going to make mistakes, but you'll learn from your mistakes and you'll get there faster by doing it that way. So this class within 10 weeks, if you follow what they say, you're going to have income by the end of the 10th week. And if you don't get out of the class, it's as simple as that. And uh, the big heroic story is these two uh, students from India uh, wanted to have a uh, news reading app and they started to work on it. And in those days, the um, iPad had just come out. So he got them an iPad, and they didn't have anywhere to work, so they went into Palo Alto and the coffee shops, and everyone wanted to try the iPad. So what they did is they got user feedback very readily, and they could change their, modify their code several times a day. So within about three weeks, the faculty said, well, you guys are ready to launch. And they said, no, 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 we're not ready. We're not ready. It's not perfect. So let's launch or get out of the class. <laughs> so they launched, and it just took off. And they, they sold something like, uh, I forget, it was something like $80,000 out of out of it. And I think it was $4 an app. So if you divide, so they, so they, so they sold like 20,000 apps or something like that. And uh, it was like amazing and this was before the class was over and then Steve Jobs gave them a shout out and the New York Times sued them for uh, use, making money off of their property and the uh, uh, San Jose Mercury wanted to hire them and it just took off and now they a few years ago they were bought by LinkedIn for 90 million dollars so this was a class where these guys if they'd done it in the business school they'd probably still be waiting to get it perfect before they launched it and it really says very simply the whole idea of what Launchpad is about. Just go out there and do it and learn by doing it. Are there any companies that you've particularly noticed do a good job at implementing design thinking or something like it? Yeah, there were one. Well, the Hasso Platinum is the guy who gave us the money. Uh, the interesting thing is he had no connection to Stanford whatsoever, but he found out about what we were doing and he said, you know, I think my company needs it 
That's SAP. I think Germany needs it. So I'm going to give you the money and we're going to, you do it and we'll copy it. And he did that. He sent some people here and they spent some weeks and took thousands of photographs and talked to us. And they went back and he had a computer science school in Potsdam and he put a D school in that computer science school. And he feels, he uses it in his company a lot and he feels it, it's the best investments he's ever made. Uh, and, uh, the, the new product, which is the rage in his company, came from a design thinking exercise of some students. So it's really interesting. So they use it a lot. But there are a lot of other companies use it. JetBlue uses it. Uh, Bank of America uses it. Uh, Nordstrom uses it. Uh, there's a lot of companies. Some of them have a consortium, actually. And more are using it. And there have been some failures and there have been some successes. But, you know, it's the kind of thing some people believe in it and, and they, they carry it forward in the company. It's not the whole company in general. Procter & Gamble made a big turnaround using it. All right, Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for talking to me.